guys, it's Amber here and welcome back to the Director's Notes podcast. Today I'm speaking to Nico Edwards, whose feature, Sea Gypsies, is a thrilling new nautical documentary about adventure, alternative ways of living and life-threatening predicaments. It's easy to see why this debut feature has picked up notoriety and awards on its film festival journey. Nico joined me on the podcast to discuss producing his documentary on a shoestring budget whilst battling through a Force 12 hurricane of ice and wind gusts exceeding 100 miles per hour through some of the most treacherous seas on Earth, and how he lived to tell the tale. Welcome to Director's Notes, Nico. Thank you very much. Great to be here. We're very glad to have you. I love the film. It was absolutely brilliant. And it's definitely inspired me. Well, I was thinking that maybe I would sell my house and buy a boat. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> I used to work in, in the dive industry, so I love being out at sea. Yeah, thank you. I'm definitely trying to motivate and encourage people to uh, seek out uh, different sorts of uh, existences that society sort of says aren't tenable, but some people seem to make it work. Definitely. I think it should be done a lot more. And I find it incredible that Clem brings up children on the boat as well. Oh, yeah. That actually was originally what brought me to the project. I I found the boat back in 2012 through an online classified ad, and they were seeking crew. And when I got on board, I, I found out, well, there were two kids on board then, and Clem has raised five children on board. His one daughter was born in uh, Vanuatu, Chloe, and then the other one, um, Riri, was born in uh, Thailand, but all on the boat. He even, I think he did a live water birth with one of them, taking the dinghy up and filling it with salt water, and he was his own midwife. Uh, it kind of shows what's possible, and, and when I first got on board, I'd just seen the kids and how they acted and how completely fearless they were. That was my kind of original motivation to make a, a film about it. But when I got back on, his son, I was going to make the film about his son, uh, Ruben. Uh, His son actually went back to Germany to get his education. So then I just sort of (laughs) changed to something else. Yeah, I think that's incredible. It's pretty awesome. They grow up, uh, you know, the babies are just swimming alongside, getting stung by giant jellyfish and experiencing stuff that kids don't ever really get to experience. Uh, I remember seeing that film a long time ago, Babies. And I don't know if you've ever seen that documentary, but it's fantastic. And you just see like five different babies and where they're raised in different parts of the world and how they how they act. And, you know, one thing that really strikes you is the baby that's born in San Francisco and Japan. They're very isolated and they're not, you know, playing with a lot of other people and children and they're just kind of quiet and it doesn't seem very natural. But on the boat. Babies are just getting raised by the whole village. There's 20 people on board and they're interacting with everybody and everybody's taking a turn helping them out and teaching them to walk and swim and avoid the jellyfish and all this stuff. So it just seems like the best, it's just a wonderful way to raise kids. It's the only problem is as they get older, it's harder for them to have lasting friendships with children their own age because the boat's constantly on the move. Yeah. So what Clem does is he sends them back to Germany when they get about 16. (laughs) (laughs) And they get a crash course in their education. Yeah, I bet. But yeah, it's supposed to be a lot better for children out in nature. Oh, yeah. You see these kids, they're just climbing up a rope to the top of the mast in the middle of a storm. I mean, just like stuff that it just, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to kind of (laughs) wrap your mind around. It's terrifying. But absolutely no fear because that's all they've ever known. Tell us a bit about the equipment that you used, how you stored it. Did you do any underwater filming yourself as well? Uh, yeah, I shot everything on one camera, uh, the 5D Mark III Canon, 
it's just a DSLR, and I only had one of them, so if it failed, that'd be the end of it. And I shot it on a hack, uh, which is these, these clever fellows figure out a way to bypass Canon's internal compression. It's called Magic Lantern, RAW, and so it just spits out RAW photos 24 per second into a folder, and then you kind of have to stitch it together and record audio separately. And it's a bit of a nightmare, but it allows a very small, not very expensive camera to produce images that rival, you know, a, a RED and way better than like a C300 or some of the other prosumer kind of cameras you see that these companies produce. They have amazing sensors and equipment in these things, but they've all been neutered with software. So I found that the the sensor in the Canon 5D is far superior to the, the C300 in a lot of ways. It's just been kind of held back with software. So for free, you can just download this patch, pop it into an SD card, and if it doesn't brick your camera, you'll get a pretty amazing image quality. And because it's so small, you can fit it in a dive housing. So I did all the underwater shots with it and storms. It's weather sealed. So it went through the most incredible storms I've ever seen. Saltwater damage. I mean, it's just it held up way better than any other any other camera would and all weather sealed and then using those L lenses Canon still still lenses that are also weather sealed uh it's a pretty awesome package I'd say yeah I can't believe you took just one camera I'd be worried to death oh yeah I was kind of terrified something would happen I also had a GoPro but I didn't use it very much because image quality is not so great and definitely out there you really want to go long lens as much as possible because the kind of a wide just sort of makes everything look flatter than it really is and it's not flat. <laughs> and then other than that, yeah, I just recorded audio separately on a Zoom H6n. Yeah, really inexpensive equipment. And I stored it in a Pelican case with some of those silica packs to try to keep the moisture down. But everything was pretty much ruined by the... I, I shot for a year. And at the end of it, everything, the screws were starting to come out on their own. Uh, the camera still worked. Everything still worked, but it was definitely getting really beat up. And then when I got back, I sold everything online, my lenses, my the camera, everything. Uh, so, yeah, apologies to whoever bought it, but uh, <laughs> use that to fund the um, post-production. So how much footage did you end up with then? I know you said you could only film for 10 minutes at a time, wasn't it? But still, if you're out for that amount yeah, of time. Yeah, I had about uh, five or six cards, and I was out for a year. So I got about five or 600 hours of footage. I've got a 12-hour rough cut of the film, but I haven't found anybody yet who's <laughs> who wants to see it. I would watch the 12-hour cuts. <laughs> it's a pretty good cut, I think. I gotta find it somewhere and like put a little more, you know, effort into it. Just getting the music rights for it would be tricky. That's one of the things that has kind of held me back. Um, I made the mistake, which you're never supposed to do, that I didn't know is editing in all the music you like that you just hear on Spotify yes. <laughs> and stuff like that into the film, and so. You know, it took me two years to get the music rights to this thing. Um, I have so 37 songs, and a lot of them are well-known, and I've been really lucky to get them by just begging artists, And but it's just taken forever. And so the 12-hour one, I think, probably is like 100 songs at least, and God, I don't know. <laughs> oh, my go. God. I'd have to find somebody to handle that, because there's no way in hell I'm going to beg that much. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or get a composer or something. I don't know. The little things I never thought about became the hardest, or actually the hardest part of making the film. And it's definitely been the, you know, dealing with companies and stuff and haggling rights and the legal issues of it all were way harder than the storms. There's some boring bits that go on the side, aren't there? That... Yeah, you have to become a kind of a, a lawyer and your own advocate and really read the fine print of what you're signing. And I don't know. Yeah, it's a steep learning curve. 
But yeah, one day we'll get that 12-hour cutout. <laughs> they originally planned on making it kind of like a series, like a web series, but then found that maybe going to festivals and doing a, a feature length doc was a better route just to get it out there in a broader kind of audience yeah. one day i'll be able to get it out back out there again and uh it just took it took three months just to sync the audio to the video oh so God. a lot of time went into you know there's a <laughs> making it all viable but if you have more time than money i would highly recommend the 5d3 with the hack and now i heard they've even made it 4k so oh. pretty incredible i think you can buy them for like a thousand dollars that's brilliant yeah it's definitely like a revolution i think this all happened at a very key time kind of a revolution in technology for making film shooting video on the cheap with still really amazing quality i mean i think i was getting 14 stops of dynamic range out of this camera you know it has a really uh, sensitive, it's a light sensitive, so you can shoot at night with a, a fast prime lens and get footage that, you know, we can't have like lights on the boat at night because you have to be able to see the icebergs, the sailors, so they can't, uh, they have to keep their eyes sensitive. So, you know, I can't think of a single other camera out there minus that new $30,000 Canon that sees in the dark, but other than that, this is kind of, I think, still kind of the best camera. Wow. I wouldn't have thought that you did it with uh, such shoestring equipment that's incredible and all the hard work obviously paid off because you've done extremely well with the festivals haven't you yeah tell us a bit about that experience how's that been yeah the whole thing definitely done on no budget at all I edited it on a laptop in a CD motel in Bangkok for about eight months and just just kept cost absolutely nothing seven days a week and then so one of the biggest expenses has actually been applying to film festivals and going through all that, we were lucky to get a grant from Telluride Mountain Film when we had a, a rough cut available. And that's helped for our coloring and, and some kind of final polishing. And then we premiered at that film festival last year, just about May. Um, and since then, it's been kind of a slow crawl to get it out there and get it seen. And, you know, not having any contacts or connections in the uh, film world Definitely makes it a hard slog, but it's been a good learning experience. And I think we're negotiating our distribution deal right now, so hopefully have it available to the world in the next uh, month or two or three. I don't know how long these things take, but... That would be brilliant because I've got lots of people that I'd love to show the film to. Hopefully soon. It's uh, It's been a very slow process, but it's all due to the people I've met at film festivals. Um, I met a gentleman at a film festival here in California, Wild and Scenic film festival who runs a um, chain of movie theaters and he really loved the film and just gave me the email addresses to a bunch of distributors and told them to see it and that was kind of what opened the door of all the things that have happened we've been really lucky to get on a lot of world tours as well uh, the Banff and Ocean Film Festival world tours and so a lot of people have been able to see it that way and it's going to be playing in I think 40 countries around the world so that's pretty cool we definitely lucked out for a, a film with no budget and no famous people in it. Though we did have Sea Shepherd. It's really nice to have them in there. Yes. Tell us a bit more about that. We Yeah, we headed down there and in the middle of the night, we just saw a light kind of. And then we weren't sure what it was. And then a couple minutes later, these commandos dressed all in black boarded our boat. Uh, we sort of thought maybe it was some sort of police force down there because we're not supposed <laughs> to actually be on land thought we were in trouble yeah we actually yeah we got fined we're not allowed you're not ever we didn't know but you're not allowed to go to antarctica without um 
permits and insurance and some kind of stuff that we didn't didn't really look into at all. So uh, we thought maybe they had some sort of police force down there we didn't know about. But then we uh, found out that it was Sea Shepherd. And they, yeah, Captain Clem is an, is an extreme environmentalist. He's worked with a number of environmental organizations in the past and always wanted to ram his boat into something. So <laughs> perfect. Uh, some sort of oil rig or something. Yeah. So we did a mission with them to try to outrun or escape the trailing Japanese harpoon boats in the middle of the night. So that was an interesting experience and, you know, definitely gung-ho to help them out in any way we can. We love uh, what they do. They have some really nice equipment down there. We were jealous of uh, the heaters they have and the the nice dry suits and the... Women. The women, the yeah, female crew and Burrito Tuesdays. And, oh, yeah, they had, a, they had a pretty nice setup on board. I can see it's a lot easier to recruit people when you can offer them amenities such as that. Yeah. We never really even got our heater working, so hard to compete. So in the film, you don't really go into much detail, or maybe that's because there wasn't any, but any kind of disagreements, you all look very happy together. Surely if you're on a boat for that long, that amount of people, there must be some arguments. I'd say this was kind of the A-team. Usually on the boat, the makeup is... You know, it's, it's usually like 50-50 men, women, and it's a lot of people who've never been on the boat before, and it's people just kind of checking it out, testing it out, and there definitely is a lot of disagreements that come up from time to time. It's a pretty tranquil community on the whole. I think people get along pretty well, but there are disagreements, and, and then people leave if they're not happy there. And if you look online, there's, there's, a, there's a terrible review by an older gentleman who thought he was getting on a cruise. <laughs> and so, you know, there's been, there's misunderstandings, and then he thought he was joined a cult. So he was pretty upset. But in those situations, people know they can just get on and leave. Um, for this trip, this three months going down to Antarctica, it was kind of the people who had mostly been on the boat before and knew they really liked it or definitely knew what they were getting into. And I think when you're going through such – it's not the tropics. It's not really like a vacation in the same sense. It's really brutal hard work. And I think that unifies people and brings them together. And I think that, you know, the relationships that we formed during those three months are, I would say, like akin to, you know, brothers in a foxhole in war. When you're living with somebody day in and day out and there's no escape and you rely on them, you know, for your life, I think it just cements a kind of bond. Uh, so there really wasn't much in the way of disagreement on the trip. I think towards the end, you know, everybody's pretty happy to get off the boat and, uh, there's a little disagreement about how much danger we actually were in. I think some people were downplaying it and some people. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there was, you know, people were a little maybe sore about that, but everybody held together really well. And I would definitely, you know, go back on board with them again. Good dynamics then. Yeah. I guess this is what will be like space travel, going to Mars or something for years at a time. You really have to work out your the chemistry among individuals. But everybody really got along. And what's the biggest thing you've learned from being aboard the boat and filming on the boat, making your debut feature. Just how addictive it is, I guess, is my takeaway. It's been three years or so since I got off the boat, and every day all I really think about is how to get back on the boat. Are you going back on the boat? I want to go on the boat. Yes. You know, they're always looking for crew. Right now they're in Papua New Guinea and they're in the tropics, and it's actually lovely. I always recommend people check it out um, and jump on board. It's actually, we have a hard time recruiting people for some reason. I'm not, not sure oh why. Gosh. But definitely planning on starting, uh, in 2018, we're going to do the Northwest Passage, sailing up from Papua New Guinea to Russia, over to Alaska, and then above Canada, and then try to 
sail to the furthest north that anybody's ever sailed before, to a little settlement on the top of uh, Canada, right by Greenland, called Alert, because of the exponential ice loss due to climate change. Uh, it's possible to sail places nobody's ever been able to. So that's our next project. The fishing, they said they went a few days without catching any fish. Is that right? Well, after being out there for so long and then, you know, talking with Clem, I mean, he's been at sea since he was 17. Yeah, he's an eccentric uh, fella. Grew up with a certain father in Germany. Uh, ran away from home at the age of 14. Lived on a camel for a year in Libya. Lived on a recombinant bike in Eastern Europe for a number of years, just traveling around and then traded it all in for a boat at the age of 17, convinced some stranger on a bus to loan him $5,000 so he could buy his first boat. And he paid it back, according to him. And he's been on the water ever since. And, you know, when you're out there that long, you notice the changes. So that voyage was about a year long. And we caught three fish in a year. And we fished almost every day. We dragged a line behind. And 10 years ago, just five years ago, you'd catch a couple of fish a week, you know, sometimes two or three in a day. Sometimes maybe a day or two would go by without catching a fish, but the ocean's kind of, uh, at least for pelagic fish, migrating large predatory fish, the ocean's pretty much fished out, it seems. Um, it's pretty sad. So we definitely didn't catch, especially in certain areas, you know, the Philippines and the heavily populated areas, you just don't, there's nothing out there anymore. A little better in places like New Zealand where they protect their coastal waters, but those giant fleets from the U.S. and China and Japan... You know, they got helicopters and up-to-date, you know, satellite imagery, and they're catching the last of it. Taking everything away. That's tragic. I didn't yeah. realize it was that bad, though. Oh, yeah. We go to Jesus. island communities, and they say they don't even go out anymore. They can't catch anything. Uh, so it's completely changed the way of life out there. A lot of corrupt governments have sold off the fishing rights, you know, for small, temporary, short-term gains. The stocks just collapse. So that's kind of what we try to put a little bit of an environmental message in the film because it's the tragedy of the commons out there and there's not a lot left. No. Yeah, there's definitely more plastic than fish. Some islands we went to, there's just so much plastic and you'll be in the middle of nowhere and you can't understand how how, there, how there's just a couple minutes you'll find a couple hundred flip-flops and just all this other plastic garbage from all over the all over the planet. What's next film-wise? I know you want to go back on Infinity. Um, have you got anything planned in between? Uh, no, just we're currently in negotiations with a production company right now to make our next one a TV series. So we're hoping, yeah, to start next, sometime next year and have it more of a, it's uh, such a long voyage and there's just so much going on that it just seems to lend itself better to more of a series format, a longer format. So we're hoping to do that for the next one but negotiations are long and time-consuming, and so, yeah, nothing in between. Well, I think it would be worth it. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Yeah, look forward to it. It better happen. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome, yeah. Better to capture the characters and character development, and uh, we've got a famous climber who wants to come on board, so that'll help out, kind of uh, raise awareness, and um, yeah, it's just a slow process of getting people interested, but yeah, hopeful. Have you got anything else you would like to say, or...? Add at all? We're looking for crew for the next voyage if uh, people are interested. Other than that, July, be June or July 2018. So, you know, I don't know what you're doing, but <laughs> hoping to have more women on board this time. I'm They're free. Worth- <laughs> yeah, there we go. Yeah. The ocean's the place to be. It's the last of the global commons. It's the last place you can go out there and you don't have to pay rent to anybody and you're totally free for 
good or bad. You can do almost anything you want out there. So, yeah, jump on board. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for coming on Director's Notes. And we wish you all the best of luck with your future endeavors. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Director's Notes podcast. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. And if you did enjoy this episode or any other, then if you could head over to wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review, that would be great as it really helps towards bringing new people to the show. And remember, you can always join us at directorsnotes.com where we have hundreds of interviews such as Alex Montoya's new music video, Insufiente where he discusses reuniting the actors from his 2010 Sundance short for his debut music video about a less than glorious morning hookup. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And don't forget about our Vimeo channel, where you can find an abundance of brilliant films from every genre. Thank you.